Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's in the Bay Area and the sun is shining. Today we are joined by writer and journal Emma Burnell in London, actor Terry Malloy in East Anglia in the UK, Mick Wright, the editor of The Conquest of the Useless, the media criticism newsletter, who's also in East Anglia, businessman Alex Bishop, who's in Hamilton in Canada. He should be joining us, but... He's got a little bit of family drama. Clint Losey, ex-Capitol Hill staffer in Washington. Eric Marcus, the making of Gay History podcast. That's his uh, little baby. We have Pundit Doug Levy in San Francisco. We have Steve O'Neill, the ex-deputy head of policy for the Liberal Democrats in London. And we have Matthew Smith, political sage in the Bay Area. In a week that has seen Daft Punk hang up their helmets, we ask, why is the minimum wage in the US so low? And why didn't the bill to raise it pass in Congress? Prospects for raising the US minimum wage took a potentially fatal blow on Thursday, as a Senate official ruled that Democratic lawmakers cannot fast-track the proposal through Congress. Democrats had hoped to include the minimum wage hike in their $1.9 trillion relief bill, which they intended to pass through the Democratic-controlled Senate without Republican votes. In a statement, White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki said President Joe Biden was disappointed in the decision. The current federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour and was last raised in 2009. Biden and most of his fellow Democrats want to double the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025. A bill on the COVID stimulus could have seen the US minimum wage of $7.25 rise to $15 in 2025. Clint Losey in Washington, why did it fail? Uh, so the, the reason it wasn't included, it, it didn't really fail to pass. Um, 
it, it was ruled out of order, essentially, by the Senate parliamentarian who is a nonpartisan official within the Senate, uh, tasked with kind of enforcing the rules and, and managing, managing the, the, the rules aspect of, of parliamentary procedure. And under budget reconciliation, which is a process that was established back in the 70s, it's, it's a way to make tax and spending adjustments that are related to the budget. So it's really, you know, one of those things, it's a tool that was used to get these very important budget bills through, um, going back to a time well before we had kind of the current um, version of political rancor that we're going through in, in partisanship. Um, but as part of that process, you can pass things with uh, with a, a simple majority rather than having to go through the, the filibuster that requires 60 votes. And so it would require Democrats to, to get 10 Republicans on board. Um, but there are restrictions on that. And the uh, minimum wage increase fell afoul of those restrictions and was basically ruled out of order. And it, it didn't fit in to uh, the rules for this particular uh, parliamentary procedure. So it kind of didn't pass because... Uh, of a technicality, uh, but increasing the minimum wage appears to be long overdue. What are the battle lines in the Senate and the House around it? Doug, over to you, sir. Well, you've got uh, particularly the red state folks, as well as the non-urban Democrats, who, for the most part, are in places where a lot of people are making less than $15 an hour. And there is a perception or a belief among many of these people that a forced increase will hurt business. The economic data pretty much tells us otherwise, but Washington, I think, has become a fact-free zone. So that's where things are split. You've got the, uh, the urban and coastal folks who say higher wages is good for everybody, rising tide floats all boats and so on, and then everybody else. Is a federally mandated $15 um, an effective solution? Because if you look at the America as a whole, um, $15 is two or three times more powerful in terms of buying power than it is in, let's say, New York or New Jersey. Eric, what do you reckon? Is this uh, the right solution for America or should the states be deciding on what is the minimum wage? You know, Royfield, it's also frustrating to watch. Um, I lived in Denmark as a student, and it's a country in which their minimum wage is way, way above what ours is. Their minimum wage, uh, in combination with universal health care, is simply what it costs, I should say, what, what one needs to earn in order to live uh, a reasonable life. And I think that should be the measure. And here we're looking at numbers, even at $15 an hour in most places, that's not a lot. That's not a lot of money in New York, uh, in particular, in the more expensive cities uh, around the country. It's not, if it's left to the States, people will be impoverished. Um, you have to look at the fact that that's so much of the country in so much of the country, there isn't concern for the fact that people live in poverty. Um, I, increasingly don't understand the country in which I live. Uh, it seems to be a very mean place um, where uh, where one party at least is most concerned with uh, cutting taxes for the wealthy and keeping a thumb on the poor. Um, it feels rather hopeless. And if I were younger than I am now, I would think of leaving the country. Matthew, the living wage in America is calculated at $16.54 Shouldn't we be looking at what the living wage is for the average citizen of the United States, away from what the minimum 
what wage actually is because for a family of what some um, two working adults two children um it is and the government has said this is 16 dollars and 54 cents per hour yes and and all the stats say you know that a, a family of, of four living in a two-bedroom apartment you know that the the primary income holder needs to work you know two or three jobs if they aren't uh, if they aren't uh, you know that standard 16 dollars an hour uh, the, to kind of echo Eric's point, we have a situation in this country where the billionaires pulling the strings are telling millionaires on TV to remind everyone else that the poor people are the problem, where it's exactly the opposite. I, 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 I talk about income redistribution a lot. Uh, I don't think that uh, you know, we need to kind of set some limit for uh, you. No one needs no reasonable person needs more than X dollars a year. And anything more than that needs to go into a social safety net program, but but we're just not there yet, unfortunately, in, in terms of mind share and in terms of convincing average everyday people that they we need to be more, way more progressive on this. Steve, there is a national minimum wage in the United Kingdom. It was kind of brought in, what, about 15 years ago or so. Could you remind us of uh, the battles which we fought in the UK to bring that about? And what exactly is the national minimum wage in the UK now? I'm scrambling to look up what the current, the current minimum wage uh, is. And obviously it was brought in under the Tony Blair government as a big flagship policy. Um, I can't remember whether it would be late 90s or early, early 2000s. Um, and they did it um, uh, with a sort of clever, uh, I'm not, I was going to call it a clever ruse, but it was kind of a, a reassuring policy, um, bringing in the low wage commission, which would set and recommend changes to the minimum wage. So the idea was that it wasn't going to be a political football, the low pay commission, sorry, would set the price and that would reassure people that it would be done in a way that wasn't going to cost jobs. Because the argument from the right for years and years was that You'll put the wage up, you'll put people and particularly people on low incomes out of jobs. Um, and that was actually one of the big achievements of centrists and, and Blairites in the UK um, in the in the uh, 90s, early 2000s. Mick, again, in the UK, it doesn't appear to me, but I could be completely wrong. Tell me that, that I'm wrong if I am. But it doesn't appear that in the UK, the minimum wage is such a hot political potato as it is in the US. Um, well, it's a funny one. Uh, it's, it's, it was announced in the budget yesterday that the national living wage is going to rise to eight ninety one an hour later this year. But, uh, back when George Osborne was chancellor, he was promising it would be nine pounds an hour by 2020. So perhaps it should be, uh, more of a, a hot topic, particularly as many people, it, it's not a it's not a huge amount to live on, and, it, and, and many people are not living, um, are, 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 you know, are not climbing above uh, the poverty line, and a lot of people are having to rely on in work benefits to to top up uh, to to live. So the system should be uh, more critical criticised over here, and the notion that we sort of that battle was won in the nineties by the centrists and the Blairites, and and and, and it's sort of you know it, it's done because. The Tories conceded that a minimum wage was was necessary. I, I it, it concerns me slightly because overall the system generally has been getting uh, crueler and crueler and more tight. And things like um, uh, universal credit for me are a sign that uh, of a backward step in the way that we look at um, uh, social protections like the minimum wage.
but that's just my view. What what do I know? I'm going to come on to you, Terry, and to you, Emma, um, in, in a little bit, but I'm going to just continue with, with our Americans uh, because specifically that is the thrust of the first half of the show. If you are listening, and we do have a few people in the room, this is the podcast Mid-Atlantic. This will go out as a regular podcast. If you missed if you missed the start of this room, go to Apple iTunes or a podcatcher of your choice tomorrow and you'll be able to listen to the whole show there also if you are listening to the podcast why don't you uh, follow me Royfield on Clubhouse and you'll see exactly when we're going to do the next show uh, Clint I've never really been able to understand how uh, the US government can very clearly say there is a, a national living wage and there are so many people underneath it this seems to me a way of um, propping up businesses via some kind of Cap, uh, socialism via capitalism and surely this is antithetical to the whole notions of your government and, and and business these businesses should be able to pay people a living wage and if they can't they shouldn't be in business we shouldn't be propping them up by via benefits and welfare uh, i mean i think whether you whether that is the the nature of the nation is a is is uh up for debate and there are lots of people debating that on both sides um uh, in, I mean, just in terms of uh, providing for social welfare, social safety nets, that's just always been a hard fight to win in the United States. Uh, and one of the reasons that the, uh, the minimum wage stays low, I mean, it should have been pegged to inflation a long time ago. Um, but one of the reasons it stays low is because people don't want to do that because uh, proponents of it hope that it will, uh, that there will be an opportunity in the future to, to boost it even higher. And opponents of the minimum wage um, hope that it just never comes to that and that they can continue to keep it uh, keep it low. Um, but but yeah, it does come down to businesses and the business lobby is very invested in keeping their costs down, particularly their labor costs. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that you see Republicans who are very much funded by the business lobby, uh, you know, much more skeptical of the minimum wage. I can add one more thing um, on, on the Democratic side. I think it's really important also to talk about how strongly uh, President Joe Biden has come out in favor of uh, uh, unionization. Um, he's come out uh, in favor of that, uh, not just, so it's not just minimum wage, it's really uh, you know, kind of an across the board support for workers in a way uh, that unions haven't seen support from presidents in, in recent memory. I think that that's really an important component of uh, where the Democrats are at on this issue. Businessman Alex Bishop in Hamilton in Canada. Um, Alex, just a couple of minutes ago, we did uh, a compare and contrast with the UK with our kind of minimum wage and when that was brought in. And I think we're all kind of broadly in agreement that it isn't quite the hot topic in the UK that it is in, in the US. What exactly is the situation in Canada with uh, your federal minimum wage? What is it? When was it brought in? It's a great question. Thanks so much for having me. The federal minimum wage seems like it's a less of an issue um, because of the rights that the provinces have over wage standards. Ontario specifically, which is the largest province, has kind of followed suit from British Columbia and up until about a year and a half ago had had a series of increases to the minimum wage that ended up doing uh, creating some some unintended consequences, I think uh, economists would say and ended up uh, reducing employment in some areas and due to automation and a bunch of other things that ended up happening. I would surmise to guess that the issue in the US is, is, is for sure driven a lot by you know, who's talking to the lawmakers. But I, I think there's also a, a good argument to be said that the economists 
um, are by and large um, I, very clear that increasing the minimum wage tends to hurt folks who are newly employed, so you know younger people and folks who are um, are, are in are, are in BIPOC communities as well. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. I, and may, perhaps north of the border, it's different. But I live near San Francisco, where we've had the experience with the living wage, which was our version of the minimum wage. And almost all the data that I've seen shows that overall economic activity and overall employment, after a little bit of a bump when it's first initiated, grows. That the living wage actually helps more people. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at, at what happened in a few different areas in, in Canada and also looking at what the Congressional Budgets, Budget Offices, um, and I apologize if you guys have already, have already talked about the study, just showing what the effect of increasing the wage from, you know, what is it, seven and a quarter to 10 or, you know, up to $15, how that would affect employment and family income. And a lot of what was, was being said was the the majority, it would delay new entries into the workforce, their ability to get get workplace experience. I'm not saying that's going to happen if you've got like an Ivy League degree, but if you're someone that you're coming out of a state school, you know, you need job experience right away. That one of the big drivers for long-term income, um, you know, over the course of someone's life of, of, of their employment is what their start is immediately after school. And what we're seeing is there's a delay for folks getting into the job market right after college um, when there's, uh, there's, a, there's a, uh, an increase in minimum wage. Now, I say, well, that, I, I say that having worked for Canada's largest public sector union and having a very strong belief that we do need living wage but, and, and we want to increase people and get people out of poverty, I think that this is really not the best tool. I think the best tool is how do we increase productivity of workers? And I think one of the big things that should be done is increasing investment in education. And I think I, I think we'd all agree with that. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, I think Royfield was expecting uh, some disagreement here, but what you just said makes perfect sense. And I completely agree. Education is the great gap, especially in the United States. It's produced, the lack of education has created so many of our problems. But the, the other thing that's important, and if you look at the uh, Congressional Budget Office study, it's true that in the short term, the boost in the minimum wage would cost jobs, and particularly at the lower levels, as you mentioned. But over a few more years, the long range net result is a strong positive. So by 2025, it would be a net loss of jobs. By 2031, the U.S. economy would be strengthened by the increased uh, minimum wage. But Americans don't have a long-term point of view. And also, I think Americans have uh, are not really able to look at other examples around the world. In, in the UK, and maybe, the, Emma, you, you can jump in here, and, and maybe you also, Terry, the, the, the national minimum wage is lower for young working adults for exactly the reason that Alex has explained, isn't it? Emma, why don't you go first, then I'll come on to you, Terry. I mean, there's a thing that economists call the veil of ignorance. Um, and I think that this has been applied really ignorantly when it comes to young people. Um, 
it may be that a few years ago, young people had less expensive lives. But most young people now are living in private rented sector accommodation. They're less likely to be paying a mortgage. So they're more likely to be paying almost double probably for their flat than they would for a mortgage. Um, and they earn less. Um, and that's just not fair. They earn less for the same work. And that, for me, is a principle that you just I just couldn't stand by. Um, I, I just don't believe you should earn less for the same work. They used to make that argument about women. They used to make that argument about black and ethnic minority people. They're less productive. They have less costs. Women in particular. Oh, well, she doesn't have to look after the family at home. She's not the breadwinner. Yeah. I just, that's not a moral argument that I'm ever going to stand by. Uh, we should not be paying young people less. We should be paying the same, same wage for the same work. Terry, let, let's bring you in on this just before we completely and utterly wrap up this, this segment. So, so, so the question is, um, short-term turbulence and disruption in the economy, when, when you bring this in, over maybe government assistance for younger workers. You're at the completely other end, if you don't mind me saying this, uh, uh, of, of the working spectrum. What are your thoughts and feelings on, on the minimum wage and, uh, and how should it be brought in, phased in at higher levels? It's a Gordian knot, this whole thing of benefits and uh, the minimum wage and how it kicks in. I mean, th there's a lot of talk now about a universal basic income in many countries around the world. and um, But then, of course, you get the discussion about that. Well, does that mean you have benefits and a universal basic income? Or is that basic income meant to cover things? It's fairly obvious, certainly in our country, given the level of poverty that we have, the number of increasing number of food banks <coughs> that are being having to be set up, that um, people at the bottom end of the spectrum are getting poorer and they're not helped by uh, the benefits, which sometimes they cannot access for one reason or other. The rules are so arcane that it, it almost requires a lawyer to find your way through them. And um, I, I feel really rather concerned that, you know, we're heading into a, a new generation. I'm, you know, I'm an old fart now I'm at the end of my life. So um, really, I'll, I'll go swiftly into that black night but leaving behind my children, my grandchildren, who are going to have to battle with the problems, the uh, disparity between the super rich, the rich, and those who are really on the poverty line. How do we do that? It, it, there's got to be a support system within society that enable those people who, as somebody mentioned earlier, have not been educated well enough because the education system is um, not relevant to use in many instances. And we see a lot of the problems politically and polarizingly in terms of nationalism as a result of that very poor education system on both sides of the Atlantic. Terry, I'm, I'm going to quickly jump in because we're going to, we need to have enough time for our, for our next topic. Well, the last question, and whoever wants to basically un unmute themselves and answer, feel free. Is one of the biggest problems around the minimum wage the fact that in the last 40 years, the great financial gains are made in society, whether it's the United Kingdom, Canada, or the United States, have actually been with people who own capital. It's not been people that uh, work by the sweat of their brow. That actually, the, the wages fundamentally have been devalued by people who've accrued extra money 
via capital. Clint Losey. Why is that a problem at the minimum wage? <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I don't know if that's a clarification for you want to make, Royfield, to Emma's question. Purely looking at um, how whether it's directors, remuneration, etc. One of the things which well, I think not on the minimum wage. What one second? One of the things which is fraying the cohesion of our society is uh, the disparity of wages. Full full stop. The, the disparity of income. Sorry, not wages. Because you know we can kind of mix the two things up. There are people earning a lot of money through wealth through capital, through share dividends. And there are increasingly a lot of money who don't have access to wealth, who are falling behind. The, the median um, average income American doesn't have share portfolios, doesn't have access to, to wealth and wealth growth in the way that the top one, two, three, four, five percent does. And, and I would argue that this is um, kind of not the fault of a minimum wage, very obviously, but it's definitely at the heart yeah. of, of uh, yeah. I don't. I don't think it's the fault. I don't think it's the fault of the minimum wage. I think it's the fault of the myth. Uh, redistribution happens naturally, and that you know trickle down economics is is real. It's not, um, and and that's just not that's not just the minimum wage, but the minimum wage is part of that. Uh, and you know, if we get rid of that myth, maybe we can start looking at you know more. Uh, impactful policy that actually helps eradicate uh, inequality because it's a huge problem. Why don't you have the last word, Emma? You're somewhat bafflingly combining conversation around the minimum wage and whether it should be higher with all the things we need to do to bring about equity, uh, which is about redistribution of wealth at the top. Now, one of the ways you redistribute wealth at the top is to bring it down to 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 make sure that people pay a living wage, not a minimum wage, Agreed. Um, and have that pegged properly to inflation. But that's just one measure, as Clint said. But it's not when you don't, shouldn't never, ever allow the framing of that question to be introduced with one of the problems of the minimum wage. So the reason I've got cross with you is because that framing is buying in to this agenda so hard and I'm not having it. Emma, it wouldn't be a mid-Atlantic if you didn't get upset with me about something. And, 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 and it was a slight, slip, got a soon, so slight to slip of the tongue. Anyway, we have people in the audience. So um, if you would like uh, to um, maybe make a point, ask a question of any of the panel, feel free to put your hand up. When you're ready, Luke. Uh, okay, yes, I was just wondering what people thought about UBI as a principle, because it seems to be, well, to me, a lot better solution than a, a minimum um, wage, the universal basic income. Can I come in on UBI? Because I feel that there's been um, a lot of praise of it, and it gets, I think, a bit misunderstood. Because what we're talking about is normally, depending on what you look at model-wise, giving everyone, I mean everyone, from billionaires to people with nothing, a small amount of money, but not enough to live on. People like um, the Fabian Society and numerous unions, TUC did some analysis, and they said that um, if you want to deal with poverty and inequality, the way to do that is traditional welfare state. The idea that everyone has to have a payment to sort of buy in, I don't really, I don't really buy that. And just to to pay enough money for the state to pay enough money so that everyone gets some, it, it sort of becomes counterproductive. I'd rather pay more targeted welfare, having people with children and uh, disabilities more than others than a sort of universal approach. So that's the case against. So Ontario had in, in Canada had a, a, a few different hotspots where we did a, a UBI 
experiment. And the net results of this were that people kept working, they became healthier, and they invested mm -hmm. in getting themselves back to uh, Im improve their their employability, and um, they they improved their their overall quality of life. So, this is something that I think is something that if it were communicated in an effective way, it's something that everyone from fiscal conservatives to bleeding heart, uh, you know, uh, crazy lefties would all agree would be something that would benefit society as a whole. Would be having a UBI. But but one of the problems is those uh, diehard Republicans in the US and conservatives in the UK that's saying you're just going to reward lazy people for not doing anything. Doesn't matter really what the evidence is around the world. There's a great study in Finland which said exactly what you've just said there, Alex, but it's uh, people's instinctive response to uh, work and, and earning a living. But Thibault, um, you wanted to come up and ask a question. So why don't you ask your question? You're going to be the last person who talks on this topic, sir. Unmute yourself. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I live in Switzerland and we don't have a minimum wage here and we have the highest uh, living standards quality, I would say, about in the world. And uh, my question is, I think the U.S. is a very specific case, and uh, I'm thinking specifically about the large number of undocumented people that live in the U.S. And uh, my question is, if uh, the minimum wage goes up, how would that affect uh, undocumented people? And wouldn't that put even more uh, big of a rift and accelerate kind of populist movements when you would see people just continue exploiting these populations because obviously the minimum wage is not going to help them very much. I'll, I'll just say one thing that um, in the U.S. Um, there has been some conversation about the minimum wage tying that to um, tougher enforcement of uh, residency requirements for uh, for employers and, and you know making sure that employees um are legally allowed to work um that 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 touches on a lot of other issues um surrounding undocumented people um but just that i just want to say that that is part of the conversation in terms of that thank you for that clint and thank you for your great question tibor if you just joined the room this is mid-atlantic we're a podcast that looks at us and uk politics on a kind of fortnightly basis or a translation for our american cousins um every two weeks uh, we are a regular podcast if you missed the start of this room you can uh, go to a podcatcher of your choice and uh, type in mid-atlantic and you will see and it will hear probably more pertinent, you'll be able to hear this podcast in uh, in full. Rishi Sunak, moving over to the UK now, has just released his second budget and it's generally been seen as quite positive with rises in corporation tax seen as one of the ways to pay for COVID relief. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. First. The furlough scheme will be extended until the end of September. For employees, there will be no change to the terms. The universal credit uplift of £20 a week will continue for a further six months, well beyond the end of this national lockdown. So I'm announcing today an extra £19 million on top of the £125 million we announced at the spending review for domestic violence programmes to reduce the risk of reoffending, and to pilot a network of respite rooms to provide specialist support for vulnerable homeless women. We're making available £700 million to support our incredible arts, culture, and sporting institutions as they reopen. I can confirm that the 5% reduced rate of VAT will be extended for six months to the 30th of September. Um, Steve, we're going to start with you. According to the, the Chatterati, Rishi Shunak's budget was kind of all right. Is that analysis correct, sir? Steve O'Neill. Well, it's not just according to the Chatterati, it's also according to the opinion polls. I've just been looking at, so look at YouGov polls. I mean, his personal approval has leapt up once again. He gets 55% versus 16% against, so he's way ahead of the negatives. Um, in terms of the measures in his budget, lots of the measures, including the corporation tax hike, are getting kind of 72% type approval, which you, you never get that with policies normally. That's really high. Um, and for a tax hike, I, I can't remember saying anything like that. Uh, and even worse news for Labour is, and this might not last, but they've just um, fallen to a 13-point uh, deficit in the polls, Conservatives 13 points ahead from being pretty level uh, just a few weeks back. So... It's gone down well. It looks like he struck the right tone. Um, and all the things that you, you play, played in that clip were things that it's hard to be too critical of because they are supporting people through the pandemic. What I would say before I let others jump in is that with budgets, the devil's always in the detail. A lot gets released. You have the initial reactions. easy to get kind of lost in the sort of big rabbit out of the hat things that come out. However, there are things there that if Labour was smarter and got on it, they could criticise. And the things I'll point to is Funding for public services isn't going up right now. And it's, I think, forecast to actually be cut slightly. Um, and there are lots of things that people, I think, in the country will be looking for that aren't in the spending plans right now. Things like pay rises, public sector workers, uh, and in particular, a solution to social care, which is in real dire straits, particularly in the context of the pandemic. 
Mick, one of the things uh, which maybe uh, we don't realise, but as Steve says, and then you look into the detail, has been um, Sunak's plans for an abrupt end to the £20 extra, uh, the increase in universal credit. Um, is that going to be, uh, you know, one of the one of the ways in which we'll realise that yes, we've got to the devil is in the detail here, and this is not all being just a great panacea. This budget. There's a few things. One, yeah, the people at the bottom of the heap will end up suffering again. I hate the way that, that, that these things are framed as uh, in the media and by commentators as giveaways and the. Uh, 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 buying into governmental rhetoric around putting their arms around the country and all this kind of stuff because there's a few like when you when you when you dig, dig into the detail you see things like tory seats getting um huge injections of cash classic pork barrel politics happening with um constituencies including sunak's own which is very um low down the deprivation index getting an injection of cash uh new red wall seats for the tories getting uh, getting injections of cash that's just that's that's corruption just straight out there and they're just like yeah no um I, i'm sure we've worked it out carefully why uh, why we've done that says the prime minister I, and in terms of in terms of how well the budget has gone over well look it, it, sunak uh, has been more disrespectful to the system of bringing the budget to parliament than any chancellor before him. And most of them were pretty bad with this. It was pre-briefed in the papers over about a three week period. Everything that was going to be announced was there and tested and the ground was made soft by the media. So I'm not so taken with the notion that he's done amazingly and look at the poll showing he's done amazingly. Plus I think we have, uh, an opposition of almost monumental um, incompetence when it comes to battling these things. The move to say we're against raising the uh, income, uh, the capital, uh, sorry, the corporation tax. That was that was madness. Labour did not need to do that, but they did it for some unknown reason, possibly to do with Keir Starmer taking such a large amount of money in the leadership races from um, quite a lot of big businessmen. But there you go. Terry, can we really expect the NHS to revert back to its pre-COVID spending plans um, after 2022? Surely it's going to need a lot more support for the next few years with, uh, you know, long COVID and some of the unforeseen ramifications, actually, of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, mean, the, I agree totally with everything Mick said. And also buried in amongst all this is the fact that the nurses have been offered 1% pay rise when they should be getting 12.5%. That's buried away in all this who are about, you know, corporation tax and aren't we doing well. It's the most wonderful PR exercise I've, I've seen in a long while since Brexit, really, <clears throat> in saying, isn't it going to be wonderful? We're going to give all, all this money away. But the, the boot at the back is, yeah, but we are going to now pull it back through taxes later on, which is, in one way, I mean, <laughs> Sunak is... is, is, is uh, is going against some of the basis of, of Tory policy that they are low taxing and and all all in favour of business. And he's saying actually we are going to now do a lot of taxing. So I don't know which way the Tory party is going, but in this respect, 
it's a brilliant piece of PR by them on the back of the, the rollout of the vaccines, which I have to say, log logistically, have been do done brilliantly, not by the government, I might add, but by the NHS. But the government were there in getting the, the, the vaccines in place. But the point is that we're going forward and lots of little holes are appearing that people are already beginning to fall through. You know, if we're going to invest in the NHS, we should invest in it and not to the meagre amount of 1% for nurses who are putting their lives on the line every day. And yet this happens time and time again. The, you know, they, they say, and as Mick rightly says, we have an opposition who are about as much use as a, as a chocolate teapot. You know, they, they, they just don't oppose. They don't actually stand up and challenge, you know, vehemently um, uh, the things that the, the Tory party are slipping through on, on, the, on, the, on, on the side. I, I think it's a tragic, you know, yeah, it's going to make some people feel very, very good. And from my point of view, yeah, uh, in the entertainment business, I will get my, uh, you know, self-employed income support again. And again, in in um, in in the summer, though probably about three months late in e each case, and they are bringing more people from the self-employed sector into that. But it doesn't help the people who are at the poorest end of the market, and certainly the people who are working the hardest. Uh, just for the people who've joined the room, you are uh, listening to the Mid-Atlantic podcast. This is a regular podcast which goes out in regular podcatchers. If you've missed the start of this room, uh, why don't you go into a podcatcher of your choice after, after the show and after I've uploaded the audio and uh, go listen to not only this show, but some of the back editions of the show. At the end of this segment, we will give you the opportunity to raise your hands and to put a point uh, to the panel. Uh, Emma, Rishi Sunak is basically walking on water. Can he do any wrong? How can uh, the opposition, as Terry and as Mick have said, has been somewhat blunted by, by this uh, budget? How can they actually lay a glove on this man? Uh, stand back and wait for him to do it himself because that's what's going to happen. Um, he has he hasn't really talked an awful. I, I mean, I, what I found fascinating about both his approach and Keir Starmer's response was that they were both having an argument about the last ten years rather than the next ten. Um, Rishi Sunak wanted to say the only reason that it was possible to spend all this money on COVID was because of the 10 years of Tory austerity made sure that we had the sound economic basis to go forward. And Keir Starmer was saying, yeah, the only, you know, the, the, the reason we had such a terrible crisis was that we had such weak economic foundations and we had 10 years of austerity, um, you know, denigrating our public services so they were not ready and fit for the crisis. Now, I know which of those I agree with more, but it's frankly pays you money, takes your choice. But why the hell are they both arguing about the last 10 years and not telling me what my life is going to be like in five years time? Uh, and that's what really surprised me about how, how short term this budget was in the most part. Um, yeah, the corporation tax cuts come in in a few years. The freezing of um, various benefits come in in a few years. But it, yeah, it, it, it just, I mean, maybe it was because it was all pre-briefed. So none of it was a surprise. It just didn't feel like I was learning an awful lot at any point during that day from either side. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I, I found it boring and unambitious. And frankly, Rishi Sunak is currently really popular because he's throwing money at lots of people and he's just said, I'll throw money at you for a few months more. Labour's 
Labour's probably right to just stand back and let him trip over his own shoelaces once he starts. I mean, he clearly believes his own hype. So when he goes around going, well, it's fine. I can I can make loads of cuts to public services. I can take all that money away from local councils, despite the fact that we told them that we do whatever it takes to get them through the pandemic. Um, it doesn't matter. I'm Rishi. I walk on water. And, you know, pride comes before a fall. And I think that the actual, I, while I agree that the opposition at the moment is weak, I'm not entirely sure that there is a glove to be landed on him at the moment, but there'll be a lot of tripping over his own shoelaces to come. Mm. President Biden in the US has just basically got through Congress uh, a, a multi-trillion dollar stimulus package. Eric Doug Plint, could you maybe speak to some of the details of that budget so we can co- compare and contrast with um, our budget in the UK? We, we're specifically looking at the fact that the UK economy shrank by just under 10% last year, which is our, our biggest fall since uh, 17, 1709. So first off, um, what were some of the elements of the US budget and are we seeing a seismic change in the interventionist state? Um, Eric, Doug, Clint, whoever wants to answer, unmute yourself and go for it. I, I was going to defer to Clint because he's probably more on top of what's going on in D.C. than I am. But I, I would say that the federal budget is still dominated by defense spending and other programs that are not going to be changed anytime soon. So there's really not that much that's happening right now. Really, the question is how much of a whole, how much further into the the, the, the sea of red ink are we going to dive? Uh, Clint? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, there, there are probably a lot more specifics than... Um, than, than I'm going to cover just now, but you know, it's unemployment and insurance uh, benefits that are increased. Uh, it's uh, payments, individual payments to people um, that I that the that have been capped at I think it's a hundred thousand um, dollars, or or rather that are phased out after you get a, uh, above seventy five thousand dollars in income. Um, I believe there's uh, support to, to states and localities, which is a pretty important um, component because a lot of the states and localities are not able to borrow uh, borrow money to support their budgets. They have to run on the revenue they make, and with uh, you know sales taxes down and rev- uh, you know tourism revenue or however you know they they get money uh, down because of the the pandemic, um, they're really going to be relying on that. But to your to your larger question about whether this is kind of a move towards a more interventionist um, federal government in, in the economy at large, I don't think so, and and largely that's just because so many of these um, provisions are targeted very specifically at the pandemic, um, and you know they're designed to phase out, and I you know I just don't see uh, the provisions here either extending on beyond the end of the pandemic or being a launching launching board for uh, you know kind of future programs of this type. We we have Lee. Um, I believe you joined us on our test, Lee, a, a couple of weeks ago. Who would uh, like to ask a question? Lee, ask your question away, sir. Yeah, I mean, for the people who are the experts on this, one of the things that's been concerning for me about the COVID relief bill, which is why I jumped on stage, is it it really does have some of the trappings of just your typical DC mess. And you know, it, from my perspective, it feels like there's a little bit of taking advantage of the situation, so to speak. For example, where I'm from in the Bay Area, I think they've subsequently removed these provisions because of the backlash, but they had money 
for the BART train extension to San Jose, for the Caltrain electrification, on and on and on. And I wonder, you know, is this is this the kind of thing that's just going to further degrade people's trust in our government's ability to help us in our time of need when they look at a COVID relief bill not as primarily helping people, but more as an opportunity to get these huge gobs of money into projects that, uh, you know, they, they want to sort of extend their power and influence back home in their districts. Um, I don't think most people care how the money comes, but I do think that people who live in the Bay area who need to go to San Jose will be perfectly happy for BART to be extended to San Jose. Um, I think we focus too much. Those of us who pay attention to these things on the process uh, people who get the $1,400 checks aren't going to care whether it was done with reconciliation or otherwise. What will matter is that they're getting the $1,400. And because our system is so broken, the only way to get through a lot of these, get a lot of these projects through Congress is through something like reconciliation, because otherwise the Republicans will block it. I mean, our transportation system is such a mess in this, in this country. And I'm guessing that most uh, people elected to, to Congress have never been to Europe or to China to ride high speed trains and are perfectly happy for us to be saddled with miserable transportation systems here. Um, maybe that'll get corrected with the infrastructure bill coming up, but I expect the Republicans to block all of these things. People care about the good things that happen to them. They don't care how it gets done. So just on the $1,400, is the only way that this could actually get passed in the United States is the fact that it goes to everybody. Could it not be mean tested? Is America just uh, diametrically opposed to saying that some people need help more than others and that some people are poor and it's not because they're lazy? Who wants to answer that? Uh, I mean, it is means tested in that it phases out. But I think it's less of a question of does every single person deserve $1,400 and more of a question of what is the fastest way to get $1,400 to the people who need it. And if that involves overpaying, point. if that involves overpaying people who don't need it, it's better that the people who need it get that money and the people who don't need it get that money than for the people who actually need that money to be waiting on, for example, the IRS to process your 2019 uh, or sorry, your 2020 tax return to decide whether or not you you need it. Um, I mean, I think it's just a matter of expediency and efficiency uh, to getting the money where it needs to be with a little bit of inefficiency there to get it to, to people who don't need it. That was an excellent point, Clint, an excellent point. This actually last section is actually for us to talk about uh, the United Kingdom and the new budget by the Chancellor Rishi Sunak. So um, last uh, question, uh, it's going to go to either to you, Mick, or to Terry. I've said this before, I'm going to say, say this again. Are we looking at uh, the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom? He has the most amazing press. He seems to be the only UK politician who seems to have risen to the challenge of COVID and had some kind of his reputation in hearts as opposed to it being battered. Is he going to be our first non-white prime minister of the United Kingdom? Mick? Uh, no. Why not, Mick? Uh, because I think that he is doing well and his personal ratings are high because of the fact that he is the Chancellor during a pandemic, giving, I think, flawed support, but support nonetheless to a lot of people. I think that actually when you look at the Tory party who will choose who the who the next prime minister is, unless you know, that's gonna they are gonna choose who the next prime minister is on the basis of 
you know, which candidates uh, they choose to become leader of the Conservative Party. People don't like it when I say this, but I think the first um, non-white Prime Minister of the United Kingdom could be pretty Patel. Go, uh, she's uh, she's extremely popular in the party. She is a rapid populist, and um, if you look at how the tabloids uh, think of her, she started to become a mononym too. Rishi might be Rishi and Boris might be Boris, but pretty is pretty as well now. Um, and I I think that the grassroots of the party quite like a strong uh, female leader that they think might put a boot on their neck. And I think they quite like the idea that she's going to be tough on all the sorts of people they don't really like very much. And I think also that Sunak's uh, shine is going to fall off a bit once uh, things start getting tougher economically. So, yeah, I don't think he'll be the first uh, non-white prime minister of the UK. And I don't think he'll be prime minister at all. As, as history doesn't show that chancellors either have a good good track record of actually becoming prime minister, or if they do, it doesn't tend to work out well for them either. I don't think that you're wrong, Mick, but I'll give the other side because I think it's a 50-50 call. I mean, I think what we've seen from Sunak is that despite being touted as a kind of Thatcherite and all that beforehand, He's shown flexibility and he's shown he knows how to spin a story and present things, which puts him in good stead. And the thing about the Tory party MPs and to a large degree the membership is that they, above a lot of things, like picking a winner when they think they, they, they can. And there is a very good chance he ends up as their next leader. He, whether he's going to be prime minister next, I don't know. He's still pretty young. It depends on when Boris quits and what happens in the next election. I, I think that he has got He's got problems, as any chancellor does, uh, and as Mick pointed out, the chancellors don't tend to have a good track record of becoming a prime minister unless they do a deal like Gordon Brown did with Blair. He's a great PR man and he's got a lot of personality and charisma. If um, that's the way premiers are now chosen by their charisma, then it may well end up as, uh, as the prime minister. The thought of Pretty Patel, and Pretty is the most ridiculous name for somebody who's so awful being the prime minister makes me think well the sooner my irish nationalization comes in i can move over to area again uh the better please um i'll be out of here faster than a than a you know a rat up a drain pipe i really would um i don't know we're we're, we're wiping the labor government out and you know i'd like personally i'd like to see um i'd like to see the um Caroline Lucas become the prime, the premier. Not that I'm particularly a Green Party member or anything, but she seems to be one of the politicians that spoke, speaks the most sense about the situation in the in the country at the moment. Yeah, but the trouble with the Green Party is that she she is able to speak quite a lot of sense because she has a willingness to be quite direct about things and and quite straight about things. But actually, when you you dig into Green Party uh, deeper into their manifestos usually and a bit deeper into their policies they're pretty wayward in a lot of ways there's some really um uh unsettling stuff that slips through into green policy policy platforms and also they really they you know it, to use a footballing analogy the bench is not deep there you know that's the trouble <laughs> as well there is not Absolutely a deep not, bench yeah, yeah <laughs> i mean the, the thing is that when you are in opposition when you are able to really you know, chase around and say what the hell you like because nobody's going to, you know, which is why I say, why isn't Starmer doing that? You know, he, he's got the possibility of doing it. You know, when you look at policies, you don't have to justify them until you come to the election. And I think justify everything. 
I think what people need to do with Starmer a little bit is look back a bit more to his period uh, as DPP because when he was director of public prosecutions, you know, uh, he 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 really was a very authoritarian figure in terms mm. of the decisions he made. He made authoritarian calls often, and I think he is a creature of he's a creature of 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 of, of the kind of, of of authority and deference to authority um which he did under the camera government and I, I don't think he's built to be an opposition leader who can take his chances he's he yeah. you know he's like alan partridge if alan partridge was fairly <laughs> laissez-faire about waterboarding <laughs> yeah well um personally I, w- I would say you know let's have andy burnham um in you know get him in in there with with uh, what's his name uh, he used to be uh, opposition leader uh, behind him you know because uh, no i have no time for stammer really and um, yeah i take the point about policies and, and the green party but caroline at least stands up and shouts it i know she doesn't have anything to need to to count, count back on something else but we need somebody up there who's going to actually challenge the tories and challenge the right-wing media at the same time we absolutely do but i'll tell you what We've been challenged by time. We've just about done our hour, folks. So I'd like to thank uh, Clint, Terry, Mick, Eric, Doug, Steve, and uh, Emma, and Alex, and Matthew, who are basically uh, our pundit team uh, this week. We'll see you all again in approximately uh, seven days' time. As I said, we are the Mid-Atlantic Podcast. Uh, we come on to Clubhouse to record our shows because it means that we get great questions from people that are in our room. And uh, we'd like to thank people that ask questions uh, on, on this week's episode. Don't forget, folks, left of centre politics is right thinking politics. Take care. Look after yourselves. ta a bit. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.